Thank you for joining us on Longest War. On this episode, we are joined by former Navy officer Tyler Benson. I am SWO. I am SWO. I am Surface Warfare Officer. The surface warfare community is the backbone of the U.S. Navy, operating on Navy ships deployed throughout the world. Being a surface warfare officer, you're kind of a jack of all trades. Weapons, engineering, how to drive a ship, how to communicate, how to lead. The surface warfare officer has the opportunity to have an immediate leadership impact, something no other community in the Navy offers. Once you step on board a ship from day one, you're leading people. People that have been in the Navy up to 20 years are working for me. Some of the brightest, hardest working people in our country. The Navy sets you up as like, you know what, you can do it. I've never seen or heard of anything like that, even within the Navy, within the military. Tyler, thanks so much for joining us, man. Thanks for having me, Nick. Are you from Pittsburgh originally? I'm not. No, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Originally, I I was from Seattle. Moved around a little bit. My dad was an airline pilot. Oh, okay. Did you like Seattle? It's a cool yeah, place. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. Cool yeah, music out there. Great music scene. Great outdoor scene. You How know? old are you now? I'm 28. So like you, too, little too young for like the the Soundgarden, Nirvana. A little bit. Yeah. I moved as a teenager to Dallas. Oh, that's a so that's a 180, man. Yeah, very big culture change. <laughs> what was that but like? It was about as big of a difference as you could probably imagine. You know, going from Seattle to Dallas, totally different culture, different mindset. But uh, I credit some of that time in Dallas to getting me in the right uh, right frame of mind to go into the military. So it wasn't it wasn't all lost. And uh, my parents still live down there. A little more, um, not patriotic, but like, fuck yeah, America down there, right? Yeah, I would almost say patriotic. I think you could probably go that yeah. far. When you moved there, did you like it at the time? When I first moved there, I didn't like it at all for a few years. And then when I I started getting involved in uh, sports and athletics, you know, that's if you're if you're not involved in athletics in Texas and you're you're nothing, you're nothing. You play football. No, I did track track. I don't look like I play football, man. (laughs) I I ran and uh, everything is super competitive in Texas. Oh, yeah. So it it really gets you get you in the right spot. So this is actually going to shape the tone. So answer this wisely. Are you a Cowboys fan? Long pause. We're done here, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I had a lot of friends who were Cowboys fans. I ended up going to a lot of Cowboys games, but uh, I, I stayed a Seahawks fan okay. during that time. And then I went to school in Michigan, and uh, I have a growing, still growing affinity for the Lions. You know, it's a tough team to have an affinity for. That's why it's growing. (laughs) Yeah. You just don't step in and start loving the lines. Yeah. You know, it takes a long time. Yeah. Especially now that Megatron's gone. Yeah. It's just so hard to watch. But so you were a football fan. You ran track. Your dad was a pilot. Did you have a lot of military family members, like any uncles, grandparents? My dad's stepdad was a uh, test pilot for the Air Force. Oh, that's cool. And then he became a test pilot for Boeing back in the 60s. And I don't know if you've seen this uh, video. It's out there on YouTube of a set Boeing 707 doing a barrel roll over Lake Washington. I have seen that. That's, that's him. No way. Yeah, he was in the right seat in that air, airplane that day. We have a very uh, aeronautical kind of family. My, my dad's brother received uh, an appointment to go to the Air Force Academy. Didn't end up going, but he ended up enlisting in the Air Force and was a, a missile tech out in South Dakota. 
uh, working on long-range ballistic missiles. Minot Air Force yeah, Base, like yeah. middle of nowhere, yeah. freezing cold, miserable. Yeah, that's where it was. Should have went to the academy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Did you want to be in aviation growing up? I did my my entire life. Actually, I wanted to wanted to be a pilot. And things changed a little bit when I when I went into ROTC. Did you know our summer cruises and kind of went out there and saw what the fleet was like and developed a I guess a longer term perspective on what I wanted to do in life and and specifically the kinds of experiences I wanted to have. So I kind of, my perspective changed on it. Because a pilot is kind of a commitment. Like you go to the training, you become a pilot. That's kind of what you're going to do sort of, right? It's a long commitment. It's yeah. 10 years, Whew. you know, from commissioning. Um, you also, there's some aspects of it I, I didn't really like, you know, conceptually. In the aviation community, you know, I, I want to tread lightly, but it's it's a lot of, focus on the individual for a long time. So this training, the training pipeline, the training program is designed to take one person from nothing into a really good pilot. Right. Whereas the service warfare officer community that I went into, the day you're commissioned, you know, within a couple of weeks, you're stepping on a ship and you have 30, 30 guys in your division that you're responsible for. And that leadership and management experience, you know, it's, it's kind of unparalleled in the, in the Navy how quickly it happens. Yeah. And it's more, I think it's more comparable to what you see in like the Marine Corps or the Army. Why the Navy? Was it, is that just the prominent ROTC at Michigan or was there a specific Well, originally reason? I wanted to be a Navy pilot. Okay. So that was the direction. And You don't uh, want to be no punk Air Force pilot, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, Navy pilots are better pilots. Right. You know. <laughs> Top Gun, man. Yeah. Who doesn't want to be a Navy pilot? Like you get to play like uh, topless beach volleyball. You get to hang out with like Val Kilmer. It sounds awesome. Yeah. That's what it is. That's the life, you know. But uh, that, that was always what I was drawn to. Were you on scholarship for ROTC? I was, yeah. So I, got a, I applied to three different schools in high school. You have to apply to the, you apply to the program as, as a national program, and then you apply to the universities, and uh, they kind of decide which one you, they're going to give the scholarship to. So I applied to Michigan, Georgetown, USC. Really wanted to get out of Texas. Didn't and care which one, as long as you just got really, out of there. Not really, not really. Michigan was my top choice. What'd your parents think? N- neither of my parents are bachelor degree holders. N- neither of them did four-year degrees. My dad has an associate degree. You don't have to degree to fly planes? You don't, no. no. You, I didn't uh, know that. You need an associate's degree, I believe, at minimum. And when he started back in the early 80s, that's how it was. He started from, the, from kind of the, the bottom of the commercial piloting world, he flew small planes out in eastern Washington when he lived in Seattle. And then he went up to Alaska and he was a bush pilot for a number That's of awesome. years. Yeah. So he had a, you know, a Malamute, half husky, half wolf dog. He lived up in That's hardcore. Anchorage, I believe. And he flew tours like around the mountains and stuff. Yeah, like a pet moose in the backyard and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Grizzly bears. He said he almost died a bunch of times, but. I believe it. Cool. You should have him on this podcast just to talk about that. That would be cool. Not a veteran, but. Finding little puddle jumpers. He's man. got some interesting stories, yeah. So it was a big deal for me to, you know, go to college, and it was always my parents' kind of dream and ambition for me to do that. And so they're super proud. Sister. Yeah, they were kind of agnostic on where I went to school, as long as it was, you know, a good school. And they didn't care about ROTC as long as you were going to college. They didn't really care. I wouldn't say they didn't care about ROTC. I think my dad was pretty. Um, enthusiastic about me going into the military. That being said, if, if I decided not to do it, I think they would have been okay with it. Sure. But they were, they were very supportive. So how does it work picking your, like picking the branch you go into? I don't know. Do they call it branches? In the Army, it's 
branch. I don't know. What do they call it? There's only four different things you can go into from ROTC. Naval Academy has some more options. Like you, you can go into the Supply Corps if you're graduating from the Naval Academy. You can't go into uh, restricted line you know, occupations in the Navy. You can, you can be a SWO. You can be a service warfare officer. Uh, you can be a submariner. You can be a pilot. And in the pretty rare cases, you can go spec war, maybe spec ops, like EOD and SEALs. Those are obviously highly selective programs, and they their percentage of candidates is kind of skewed towards like the Naval Academy. Oh, yeah, I would but imagine. It's it's tough to get into those. But those are kind of your paths. So once you, Did you, you give know, much thought to Submariner? No. Because you're a pretty tall guy, man. Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, I never. Uh, we On one summer cruise, we went on a submarine for a little bit and uh, just wasn't my cup of tea. Definitely made your decision then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Plus you have to go to nuke school. Wasn't really about that. So. so what does a service warfare officer do? Surface warfare officers are kind of the utility officers in the Navy. You're, you're an officer on a ship. You're kind of a general line officer on a ship and you show up, they give you a division. They, you don't know what job you're going to have when you get to the ship. There's so many different areas of expertise on a, on a Navy ship. And uh, you show up and they hand you this division. And it, it creates a very interesting dynamic when you show up because you have a, you got a division of guys, 20 to 30 males and females, depending on what division you're in, who have a lot of experience in one specific area. And you're showing up with none of that unless you're prior enlisted. So it takes a long time to earn respect. Sure. And uh, the, the guys who fail at doing that are the guys who show up and think they know everything from day one. For some of them, it's a tough road. Like I, I knew officers on the ship who they, you know, they might've had an electrical engineering degree. And so they're put in charge of the electricians on the ship. But just because you have an electrical engineering degree doesn't mean you know shit about Right, there's any practical yeah, application there. You don't know anything about the electrical systems on a warship. And so a lot of those guys would show up real cocky, right? And then uh, got a, were immediately taken down a notch by their chief, which is, such an important role in the Navy, the chief, yeah. the senior chief. Rocking it's, those khakis. <laughs> that's right. If you, if you don't have a good chief, it's going to be tough for you. Is it harder? Uh, so when you first get there, like my understanding is the Navy's still fairly rigid with that officer enlisted divide. Like in the Army, you're deployed. You could have a company commander sleeping in a tent with a bunch of privates, right? You guys don't. Like there's officer quarters, there's officer mess, there's stuff like that in the Navy still, right? Yeah, and that's, that's a tough line. Right, because you're showing up as a 22-year-old right out of college, and you're not insulated by the kind of long-term training programs like that you do in the aviation community, in the submarine community. So, for instance, in, in, in aviation, you don't report to your squadron until you're at least an O2, you know, sometimes, depending on what direction you go, maybe you're an O3, and um, you have a lot more experience. You know the kind of the bureaucracy better, you know the relationships better. But it's a hard it's a hard line to to kind of stay on, you know. It's a it's a hard line to think about when you show up as a 22 year old right out of college and you're there's 26, 28 year olds who are and your chief's like 40, 50 in some cases. Yeah, old I mean, grizzled dudes with mustaches. At least in their 30s, you know. Unless you got a, a shit hot chief who's like you know in their 20s, but generally speaking, these are people who've been in the navy way longer than you. Yeah, and have more institutional knowledge. So they know this, the bureaucracy better. If you're not open-minded about it, and if you can't kind of uh, think on your feet in those situations, it can, it can be tough and you can 
really sacrifice some of the some of the respect, I think. So once you leave a ship and you go to a new ship, is it always kind of like, oh, we'll figure out what you're going to do when you get there? Because I met with this guy, Admiral Hughes, yesterday, and he's the chief naval recruiting officer. And he's like, the one thing I've never done in the Navy was the amphibious assault stuff. He's like, so obviously my next position is the commander of the Navy's amphibious assault like detachment. So it's like you're just a general, like jack of all trades, and they just send you wherever they feel like they need you? Only the first ship you report to. So when you, <laughs> you, you're, you're pretty undervalued when you get commissioned and you're sent to a ship. They don't tell you. You show up. The, the day you check in, you know, the day I checked into my first ship, they had a lot of ideas on where I would go in the ship. They didn't tell me even that day. Right. You know, the navigator who uh, had done two tours on the same ship, which is pretty rare. Most people don't do that. He'd been there for a while, and he goes, well, I want you to be my A-nav, you know? And then the captain was like, no, you're not going to be the A-nav. You're going to be this. And then some other department head was like, well, we really need him over here. And you just kind of get tossed around until you kind of find a good fit. They find a good fit for you. But after that, your second ship, you have a specific billet. So uh, my second ship, I was the AOPS, Assistant Operations Officer on Harper's Ferry, what a, kind of ship were you on the first ship? It was a guided missile cruiser. And the second one? It was an LSD. So what are the difference in sizes and capabilities of those two? Yeah, so they're wildly different. Their, their missions are completely different. So the, the cruiser, it is a warfighting ship in the, in the purest sense of what you think about a warship. So this is a ship that's main priority is to protect the carrier battle group, and it's out with the aircraft carrier the entire time. So we were at the Lincoln Strike Group on its deployment in uh, 20, late 2011 into fall of 2012. Went over to the Raven Gulf. We were there when uh, Iran issued their warning. You know, they said oh, yeah. the next ships that go through the Straits of Hormuz were going to destroy. That was us. We went through the next day. You said, bring it, motherfucker. And we <laughs> went through it back and forth quite a few times <laughs> over a six-month period. And you're, you're pretty armed? Extremely, yeah. Like cool stuff too, like Tomahawks and all lot, kinds of like high-speed stuff. A lot of Tomahawks, yeah, 128 you know, missile cells. Do you have guns, like personal weapons at all? Oh, yeah, yeah. You're not armed with them. Yeah, they're like in know? the armory or somewhere. Yeah. But we, so like they're all trained on them and everything. Right, yeah, yeah, we're all, you're all trained on it. But you don't get to get drunk and shoot off the bow or anything like they used to do in Kevin's day. <laughs> no, I think that era's passed. I, I'm, it's unfortunate that it has passed. But well, these clowns ruined it for all of us, man. Yeah. But <laughs> we got handle to, it. We got to do some cool stuff. Like, you know, you do a lot of uh, five-inch exercises when you're out there, the five-inch gun. So That's you get, badass. You get to shoot that off quite a bit. And Does the thing shake like when those go off? Yeah, the whole ship shudders, you know. The, the thing is super powerful. This is a 567-foot-long warship, and the whole thing shakes. And it moves too, right? I think yeah. it can get up and go if it needs to. We, we, we could do about 30 knots. No. That's quick for yeah. a big boat. And it has four gas turbine engines. So this is, this is the same. These are the same engines that you find on a DC-9 aircraft, and, and they require marine diesel fuel. But we also have pretty hefty loadout of, uh, of JP-5 jet fuel. Oh, yeah. To load up That'll the, get you going. <laughs> yeah, to load up the uh, helos, do a lot of helo landings. And we actually had, you have a helo group of helo pilots on the ship all the time with you. The helicopter pilots, are those all Marines or they're No, Navy? they're Navy guys. Okay. Yeah. yeah what kind they're of, flying, kind they're of flying, helicopters? Uh, SH-60s. That's cool. Yeah. You ever get to ride on them? Yeah. yeah. Actually, in RTC, uh, on your first, your first uh, summer cruise, they let you fly one. 
you know, under close supervision. It's super but close they, supervision. They take the controls a little bit. Just you just hover off the ground, you know. It's like when you sit in your dad's lap and drive, like but he's really <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty much it. That's still awesome yeah. though. Yeah, it's fun. Did, did you get seasick the first time you went out? No. But there are circumstances where everybody gets seasick. So I remember one time on the cruiser, cruisers aren't very beamy, which means that they're not they're not wide, right? They're very narrow because they're built to be fast. And uh, so and they're very top heavy. It's so very tall tilt. and narrow. So they, you get a lot of roll in heavy seas. So we were out in uh, the Gulf of Aden when we were leaving the Arabian Gulf, coming around the Arabian Peninsula into the uh, Red Sea. And we're in the Gulf of Aden, which is kind of known for its, I think choppy is probably an understatement, like tempestuous kind of seas. Like these are swells, right? Like <laughs> Yeah. So we were, we were out there and uh, everybody was green. I mean, we had these, these waves were coming over the top of the pilot house. Wow. You know, we're sinking down into the waves this thing is crashing into the windows you're rolling so much that you know you can almost stand up on the, on the walls you know the bulkheads so it's just the floor and birthing just covered in vomit yeah everybody was sick man <laughs> so how do you deal with, like so we we had a uh, world war ii navy guy and we asked him like how do you deal with seasickness he's like oh back then they just gave you donuts and said you eat through it man <laughs> Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know that how way. that's. I don't know how that's possible. He said I wasn't hungry for days. He said you stuff enough powdered donuts down, and eventually you just get over it. I never tried that. It sounds like the worst way to go about it, honestly. I didn't eat for a couple of days. I mean, nobody was eating anything. It would have come back up. Oh in yeah. Direction. <laughs> What's the highest ranking guy? Is that a captain on that? On the Harper's Ferry? Yeah. It's a commander. A commander? Yeah. Yeah. Oh five. What about the other ship? Oh six. So that the cruiser is. Um, is, is kind of the admiral's main guy out off the carrier. So you have the admiral of the carrier strike group, and then you have, uh, you have the commodore, who's also an 06. Then you have the captain of the cruiser, which is also an 06. And, uh, you know, they've usually been in the military 20-plus 20, 20 years. Uh, they've been a CO before on a different ship as a commander. These are usually the top guys you know, who become uh, cruiser captains. Like and they're, they're in line, they stick around, the stars Yeah, they're usually in line for Admiral at some point, yeah, down the road. So uh, it's a big responsibility that the cruiser has on deployments with a carrier strike group. Their, their mission is to protect the, the strike group, and uh, they delegate responsibility to some of the destroyers, which are uh, slightly, overall slightly newer, Slightly smaller warships with a lot of the same capabilities. You know, the, the cruiser is kind of defined by its uh, air defense capability. So with our Aegis system and some of the responsibilities that are delegated to RCO, uh, we, we we're kind of the first line of defense in any air defense, you know, threats. So these are competent guys. Extremely. So yeah. as an ensign, when you show up, are they just like, don't fucking make eye contact with me, kid. Absolutely. Like, stay out of here. Yeah. You have to earn your place. Like, you wouldn't dare you know? approach the captain or the commander as an ensign unless it's like shit is about to sink, right? Yeah, you're, you're, you, don't, you don't skirt that chain of command. So you have your department head who's uh, usually an 03, sometimes an 04. You say hello in the hallway and that's it, right? That's the extent of your you don't communication. Say hello. <laughs> you, don't, you say good morning, sir. Good morning, sir. Yeah. yeah that's As you say, shut right. the fuck up, ensign. Yeah, or says nothing. <laughs> sees right through you uh but your department head's kind of that's the person you're dealing with most or getting yelled at by most on a daily basis 
it's a that's a very interesting position in the in the military, I think, and certainly in the Navy is the department head role. They've been in for maybe eight years. You know, you do your first two tours, it's four years. Then you go to shore tour for three years, and then you go to what's called department head school. It's, uh, I think, six months in Newport. And those dudes are usually like lieutenants? Like yeah, and they're O3s. And then you, from there, you go back to the ship and you become a department head. So the department has multiple divisions in it, like engineering department, for example. You know, you have the gas turbine guys, you have the electricians, you have the machinist mates, you got all those people. And the department head, the chief engineer, is in charge of all of those people, which I was, I was in engineering department the second half of my first tour which was quite an experience. So the two ships were radically different. You're an intimate to the first one. You were a Lieutenant JG by the time you made? It was JG, yep. But were you still in situations as a different ship? Are you still kind of like, damn, I don't know anything again because it's different capabilities, all this stuff? Or do you, do you learn basic enough stuff? Very different dynamic when you step aboard your second ship. You're, you're automatically treated like you know way more than you do. So it's the opposite. <laughs> so when you step aboard your That's first ship. That's almost worse, right? <laughs> it, sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. You step aboard your first ship and you're treated like you know way less than you do. And on your second tour, you're treated with more respect than you probably deserve <laughs> when you step aboard. Right. Because you're, a lot of times you're stepping into a position that you still don't know that much about, that you have to learn. But they trust your ability to learn. And, and, and you know, in the military, I'm sure it was like this in the army. But your, your ability to navigate the institution. You know how the Navy works at that point. Yeah, it's so important. And... It saves you from circumstances that lose you trust or respect from other people. You know, you, you, you're right. better able to discern what's important and what's not. And that, that's really what That's matters, crucial. For sure. Yeah. yeah. You did four years. What was your last assignment? Uh, I was the AOPS on Harper's Ferry. So I did that, and then I got out and went to the reserves. But What did uh, you do in the reserves? As a reservist, when you first go in, you don't really do anything. <laughs> in terms of billets. You're not right. really given a job for a while. Were you based out of Pittsburgh when you did that? Yeah. There's no water here, so that's weird. <laughs> right. Yeah, they did all their uh, training exercises. They did a couple West African training exercises. That's cool. Yeah, I wasn't able to go to them. So I did a lot of work from, from Pittsburgh. But the reserves are a totally different animal. I don't know if you did the reserves in the Army, but it's such a different mentality and such a different... Uh, uh, mindset that is it all admin work for officers when you're yeah it's a lot of admin but it's it's kind of what you make it yeah you know that's how the reserves it's it's the exact opposite of the SWO community in the in the uh, active duty side of it it's not what you make it it's what you're told to do you know right. in active duty by and large but in the reserves it's you can take it as far as you want did you have a more responsibility in the reserves or active Definitely active. Yeah. And, you know, in the reserves, you don't have a division. There's nobody counting on you all the time. Uh, and, and bar none, I mean, that was the experience in active duty that kind of gained me the most knowledge and, and I guess, maturity, you know. There's nothing like stepping onto a ship or stepping in front of a platoon, like in the Marines or the Army, at 22 years old. Right. There's nothing like that in the world. Yeah. And you, you just can't buy that experience somewhere else. And when you're underway on a ship, like ships are dangerous. Like we, we talked about, I like to talk about this a little here today, the destroyer that was hit the other day, like mm -hmm. people screwed up and people died for it. Right. Like, so it's not like you don't have to be in combat in the Navy to lose people. Like if you fuck up and don't do your job, it could very well cost somebody serious injury or, or even death. Like 
And that's a lot of responsibility for a 22-year-old kid, right? Navy ships are dangerous places. People are hurt all the time that the public doesn't know about. I mean, when people are killed, it's a it's an absolute tragedy because uh, a lot of times it's preventable. When it's non-combat related, it's a completely preventable. Right. And uh, it's tragic. But, you know, I think a lot of people don't understand how dangerous just ships are just being on a ship especially for some of the guys who work in, you know, the gunner's mates, the guys who work with the weapons, definitely the, 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 the guys who work in engineering. Engineering spaces are really dangerous places on a ship. Well, Lauren, we had her in a previous episode. She was like, what is, what's her She's title? a machinist mate. She, has, she was down in a boiler room. Yep. She said she had to light like this six-foot match and mm-hmm. like the flame on this thing like could just burn people alive. And so there's this like fire. There's like something burst and there's thousand degree steam coming out of it like... This is like a nightmare. I'd rather be in Afghanistan getting shot at than on one of those damn boats, man, with fire <laughs> and steam everywhere. Boiler, ships with boilers are, are especially dangerous. You know, the concept of a boiler yeah. is extremely... It's crazy that that's... I, I just figured we'd, everything would be running nuclear now. We wouldn't have to worry about all that stuff. Yeah, I think that's maybe where, the, where it's going. I mean, the, the sheer amount of fuel that these ships go through, the sheer amount of fuel that we went through on, on the Cape is would it's blow crazy. your mind. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it would blow your mind, even when you're on. You know, most of the time you have four engine, you have four jet engines. You're only generally running one or two of them at any time. But when you fire up all four of those things, you're burning tens of thousands of gallons an hour of marine diesel fuel. Bosun's Yeah, mate. so the bosun mate, it is the quintessential Navy job. The bosun mates are in charge of all the Navy stuff that when you think about, when you think about the Navy, you're really thinking about bosun mates. You think about tying knots and anchors yeah, yeah. And, and being on deck for the ship and taking supplies. Those are bosun mates doing all that work. They do the most wide ranging set of things than, than anyone else on the ship. They're usually really physical guys. You know, a lot of, a lot of athletes, former athletes from uh, high school athletes, or even sometimes junior college athletes will become bosun mates just because it's not a very specific role. Not to diminish it, but like my dad worked as a captain of a ship in Alaska and it's like, he had the, the deckhands, but it was like the biggest, strongest, most trustworthy dudes because the shit will get you killed. So it's got to be like a high speed guy in that position, sort of like that. Absolutely. My division, we had some incredibly intelligent guys too, though. I mean, we had a, we had a man who was, uh, he was actually in his 30s, but he was a deck seaman. You know, he was an E3, I think, when he checked on the ship. But he had a PhD in mechanical engineering. His dream was to become a SEAL, and uh, he's French, you know, by nationality. Uh, he's an American citizen serving America's military. But he didn't come in with the knowledge to navigate the institution, so we started. So they stuffed him as a deck seaman. Now, we helped him get there. I, you know, myself and my chief personally helped him and another deck seaman who, <laughs> who had a master's degree in engineering from Purdue, so those were your smartest guys on your boat, were the, the deck seamen. <laughs> yeah, we, there were others. I mean, we had some really intelligent guys. And uh, both of those guys I just mentioned, actually, the, the, the guy with the uh, engineering degree from Purdue was one of the best swimmers in the U.S. He, he went to the Olympic trials. And uh, we helped him and the, the, the Ph.D. seamen get to SEALs. You know, we helped him get to BUDS. Did they make it? I think they actually both became ill during training. Ooh, that but sucks. they commissioned as officers. 
Like they, they not only did they go to buds, but they went to buds as officers. So we helped them go from enlisted to, uh, through OCS and then they went to seals to buds. And, uh, I think they both became ill and on the officer side of the seal community, it's pretty cutthroat. So, I mean, you go to buds and even if you get hurt, you don't get a lot of chances on the officer side. You know, we had, we had one of the biggest divisions on the ship. I think it was 28 guys, you know, and we, we did a lot of, a lot of the, the bare essentials, the things that, you know, keep the ship going. We, we handled unreps is what they're called when we pull alongside another ship and take fuel and take supplies. You know, you're out there on the deck actually receiving that stuff. You go right alongside it, basically a supply ship within, you know, 50 yards and you're bringing over huge pallets of, of uh, food and other supplies, and then you're hooking up at the same time. You're hooking up these huge fuel lines and taking in JP5 and Marine. How do they get the fuel. lines? Is it? Uh, I imagine it's awesome. It's like they shoot one of the hooks across the bow. That's like, exactly what it is. Is it for real? Yeah. Oh yeah. man, who gets to shoot that? Yeah, it's it's a. I believe it was a, a gunner's mate who did that. So you never got to do it. You weren't no. like, dude, give me the gun. Let me try. No, it. <laughs> I, I wish it looked really fun to do. Sometimes I think they personally mess it up, you know, on purpose so they could keep doing it. Doing it again. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. So they'd shoot it over, and then, you know, we brought out over all the lines. It's usually two huge fuel hoses, you know, that we take. Well, that's how you get, like, mail and stuff, too, right, from Correct. other ships. Yeah, you swing it over. It's it's very rudimentary. Oh, yeah. It, they've been it's, doing it the same way for a long time. Even when there were wood ships, that's exactly how they did it, right? Right, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, and that, that happened every week to 10 days. So the Did, did you of, like that job? Like, that sounds pretty cool. I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. I loved the, what I loved about it was the, was the hands-on aspect of it in terms of leadership. So I, I really enjoyed being with my guys. It seemed to me that the higher up kind of positions on the ship were a lot less fun. Sure. And you're, you're way more distanced from... It's very insulated. Yeah, yeah, you're way more distanced from the actual leadership of it. And that's ultimately why I decided to get out because uh, I, I kind of saw the path where it was going. And I became a little bit, you know, concerned about moving too far away from what I really loved about it, which right. was the, the real hands-on leadership aspects. But if you'd stayed around too much longer, like you kind of get stuck, like you, when you start to hit like seven, eight years and it's like, wow, shit, I might as well do 20 at that point. So you decided to cut it at four. Why the reserves though? Like you didn't have to do the reserves, did you? No, I didn't, but it's hard to do a clean break you know, it's hard to go from nothing. When I got out, you know, I wasn't going into a big institutional civilian job that kind of mimics some aspects of the military. I wasn't doing that. I was going from this very insulated community that's the military into just pure avant-garde entrepreneurship, just starting with nothing. And I felt like I still kind of needed some of that structure. You know, there were other, there were other practical reasons why. I mean, we went from my wife and I went from this very stable income to nothing, you know, zero. Still had TRICARE while you were in the reserves, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. A, so that's there, a kicker, man. Yeah. There was, uh, there were some benefits to it, to doing it. And, and it was the right thing to do, I think. And I, I wasn't ready to be done serving. I'm still not ready to be done serving, but there's a lot of ways to serve. Sure. And uh, I will always really cherish my time in the as an active duty officer. So when 
when you left active duty, you already knew you wanted to start a business. You wanted to be, you didn't want to go just like work for a BNY Mellon or something. You wanted to be your own boss. Originally, that was the ultimate goal was to do that, uh, was to be my own boss. I didn't think it would happen so quickly. Going back to the, to the point about being a divo, division officer on a ship, is that in a lot of ways, you had a lot of autonomy. You know, you had a lot of autonomy with how you worked with your guys. It's such an important role in the, in the Navy, and it doesn't get the attention it deserves, that divo role, because I think it's overlooked sometimes, but it shouldn't be, because you're the main example, and you're the main like, point of contact, and you control, you meter the resources to yeah. your guys. You were an 03 at this point? No, I was an 02, 02. 01 and an 02. Okay. You know, it's the second you step on the ship, you have a division. You're totally in control of what these guys receive from the Navy. And you're the, you're the switch. You're the, you're the flux valve, you know? So, like, the chief is there to, like, make sure that the management of this division goes off without a hitch every day, that the job gets done. The Divo has an opportunity to do a lot more than that. So the guys under you, the experience they have in the Navy is largely dependent on the type of leader that you are at that point? I think that it can be very controlled by that. I was fortunate enough to have some of the hardest working, best dudes I would ever, that I'll ever work with the rest of my life. Hands down. I'm sure you'd say the same thing about oh, some yeah. of your guys. And, you know, I hope, I hope we get to talk about that aspect of it in this next part about when, what happens when you get out. Yeah. Because I think that's a gaping hole in our society right now. Well, where did, when did you meet Ben? Yeah, so I met Ben on my second ship on Harper's Ferry. Oh, so you guys served together? We did. Oh, okay, We served cool. on the same ship. And he was from Pittsburgh? Right. So All he right. was the OXO on the Harper's Ferry. That's the auxiliaries officer. What does that do? Uh, you're, in, you're, you're in charge of all, you're basically the plumbing system of the ship. All the auxiliary systems. How, how do we make fresh water? You know, how do we... How do we move fluids throughout the ship? How do we maintain all the piping? How do we maintain all the auxiliary systems that aren't just the main engines? So you have to learn all that without the benefit of having like gone to plumbing school, which is pretty intensive. There's a Navy quote unquote version of, of that. And it's, you know, it's way more complex than, than like plumbing. Right. You know, it's, it, these are really complex systems that, that keep this ship a habitable place to live. You know, it's also like the air conditioning systems of the ship, the airflow. Well, your potable water and stuff too, right? Yeah, like absolutely. And the really important systems, especially when we're in a wartime scenario and we're talking about taking casualties in terms of a ship casualty or an engineering casualty when systems fail, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the machinist mates in the ox department who are going to be the first line of defense on this stuff yeah. and the DC men, damage control guys. So it's a high pressure job. Yeah, literally and figuratively, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, it's very, very much so. Um, anyway, we met on on that ship. We went on deployment to uh, the Arabian Gulf, second deployment. He actually did three. He was one of the few divos that got stuck with three deployments in a four year period, nine months each. Nice. Uh, but builds character. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It builds something. Yeah, uh, we went out there. We did uh, exercise with Marines. That's what an LSD does. You know, we we haul Marines around. The ship is not, it's not fast. It, it's, it's big and slow, but it's made to carry stuff. Yeah. A lot of Marine stuff. And it's made to put them on the beach and pick them up and make sure that's done safely. So. Were they always like causing trouble and shit? Cause they're Marines and that's what they do. Yeah, they I don't, break a lot of shit all the time. <laughs> <laughs> they were hogging the gym all the time. Oh, pff. 
Dude, they're meatheads. That's all I do is hit the gym. Yeah. I, I, uh, I remember one night on watch, after watch, it was, a, it was a middle of the night watch. I got off watch at 2 a.m. And I said, this is an absolutely great time to go work out because nobody's going to be down there. Wrong. <laughs> it was packed. Yeah. It was packed with Marines. I couldn't believe it. And, uh, you know, they're always in line 30 minutes before the meals. Because <laughs> <laughs> what else do they have to do, right? Nothing. Like, they're just... Nothing. Yeah. It's, it's just not like being a lot on a plane of, for six weeks. <laughs> there's not a lot of training that goes on because so much of the Marine training is, is hands-on. Right. And, you know, it's... And, and, and a lot of these guys are they're infantry Marines. So the value they really get out of the deployment is when we do the exercises. Right. And uh, in the meantime, it's a lot of working out, a lot of eating, a lot of bullshitting, you know, but that's just how it's always been. And uh, it's that symbiotic relationship between the Navy and the Marines that, that is so important. So anyway, Ben and I met on that deployment and uh, we just started, you know, talking about some business ideas. I mean, we, I think we found that we were pretty good business partners pretty early on. We thought in the same sort of strategic kind of ways that are really important. And we have a shared background and shared experience, which is also really important in, in my opinion. Um, and I was finishing up my MBA. I did a distance MBA program with uh, Indiana University. And I uh, did that while I was on active duty, which I only credit to my wife. You know, it, it, was, a, it was really difficult to do and it's I a heavy lift yeah could not have done it on my own so she took most of your tests for you and whatnot right yeah, yeah. <laughs> she studied for me past she's way smarter than i am so i want to make that clear nice. on this podcast we'll keep that uh, in for sure <laughs> please do because this will be shared with that'll her. be the quote we put on facebook to the lead in absolutely she's way smarter than me <laughs> absolutely but she carried the pack you know during that time. oh yeah i'll, I'll never uh be able to <laughs> pay her back enough for that for that time period but um, I was finishing that up and had some, you know, a few essential skills, I think, that you pick up in a business program that help you kind of get started in the right direction. Nothing can prepare you for entrepreneurship other than the military. I think that that's like the best prep you can have is sure. being in the yeah. military. Because at the end of the day, the hardest thing about it is, is having the... Uh, stubbornness, perseverance, and, and I guess just grit. Intestinal fortitude. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you, you really get that in the military and I, I owe it for that. But we came up with a couple ideas. They were bad. And then we started thinking about a food hall sort of concept because we've seen these open food markets, you know, in Southeast Asia, like Singapore, yeah. Thailand, some really high quality street food and sort of this shared community experience. And we wanted to bring something like that back to the U.S. You know, we're not, we're not chefs and we don't have food industry experience. We don't have restaurant experience. But we kind of saw the different pieces and how it could work and uh, took a lot of iterations. Is that why, so you knew, like you and Ben, you wanted to go into business together. Is that why you came to Pittsburgh? Right. Yeah. So he's from Pittsburgh. Yeah. And believe it or not, I didn't find this out until after I moved here. But my grandmother, my dad's mom, grew up in Pittsburgh in the 30s. She moved away from Pittsburgh when, when she was just a kid, and they never went back. But I still have a ton of family here. That's crazy. Who I, I don't know them. Still? I still don't know them. <laughs> yeah. She moved away. I mean, her... They come to Smallman and eat all the time, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. She was Scott's Irish family. I mean, kind of typical immigration story. They all worked in the steel mills. Right. Lived over in... Uh, they actually lived in the South Hills around, around here. That's cool. And, uh, but she moved away. Pittsburgh in the 30s and 40s wasn't, not a great place wasn't to be. the best place 
yeah. it's a better place to be than Pittsburgh in the eighties. Yeah. But uh, marginally. <laughs> yeah. But um, she never really looked back, and so there's a whole big piece of the family that's here that I don't even know. But but I digress. We came to Pittsburgh because there's a ton of opportunity here. You know, that's the main reason. Ben's family doesn't really live here anymore, so he didn't have a huge reason to come back. You know, his wife works at uh, at the hospital. She's a neurologist, so I guess there's a reason. Otherwise, there's not a ton of reason to come to Pittsburgh. Just other opportunities. Than, other than seeing this opportunity. Rust Belt Cities, you know, that this is probably a topic for a whole another different kind of podcast, but Rust Belt Cities are way undervalued in our opinion right now. The value is actually being recognized by the people who don't have a ton of ability to influence right. the change. But I think after, in the next couple of years, some of the big pockets, the deep pockets, the big institutional money from around the country, around the world is going to catch on to what's happening in the Rust Belt. Pittsburgh is a particularly good example because it's the only one really so far that's been able to make that pivot like from steel industrial to like Ed's meds, that kind of stuff. So it's Pittsburgh's kind of leading the way, setting up a good blueprint for Detroit or, you know. I think Pittsburgh's a great model. Yeah. I think Pittsburgh's doing a lot right. And I think that there's a lot more Pittsburgh could do at the same time. You know, sure. it's, it's growing pains. It's going to take a long time. It's going to take a couple generations for this to really flush itself out to really see what Pittsburgh's capable of. So when you guys get here, it's these two hotshot Navy officers that come out. So like people must have been knocking down the door trying to work with you, right? <laughs> I wish that was the case, Nick. Yeah. And I'm glad you asked that because there's a really important topic of conversation here that's centered on, on that. It's not easier to start a business because you're a veteran. It's not easier to find good employees because you're a veteran. The process, the, the wheels are not greased because of your military service, other than the, the fact that you are capable of doing it that you have proven to yourself that you have the confidence that you're capable to do it. But the systems in place, the institutions in place, despite a lot of the rhetoric and some of the lip service behind this, are not supportive. I mean, Like you know, the reality is funders and investors don't give a shit that you're in the Navy because you don't have an experience in business. You have Navy experience, and they don't, they don't understand how that could possibly correlate. Yeah, and I, you know, I don't want to be overly negative, but it's really difficult. It's really hard to walk into a city and have no connections and really no networks and certainly no money and start something no one else has done before and uh, get the community behind it. That's a long, hard process for anybody. But I think our expectation was that there'd be a better support system, generally speaking, for veteran startups. And that's something that I'm personally have become very passionate about that, you know, we want to start working on over the next couple of years is how do you really grease those wheels? Well, people say there's the VA business loan. Like, what about that? <laughs> there's also the SBA loan, right? And so there's a quote-unquote veterans pathway in the SBA process. We've found those paths to end with uh, in dead ends. You know, those, those are not... I heard the approval rate for the VA business loan is like less than 2%. Like virtually no one... It's that one... high? Yeah, wow. yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> These financiers and these funders and these backers, these banks, no matter who you are, they're going to be willing to take a certain amount of risk. It doesn't matter what your background is. If you don't have assets to pledge collateral, if you don't have a personal guarantor that has substantial income, 
they don't make loans based on trust. You know, they make loans based on your ability to repay them. And what happens if you can't? What do, what do they get in return if you can't? Right. That's what it comes down to. That's what I hope we're going to start to uncover over the next few years. The requirements are sometimes stifling, and I think that they're really limiting the output of new businesses by veterans. Well, there's 21 million veterans in the United States, and there's only two two and a half million veteran-owned businesses in the United States. Right. 10% of veterans-owned businesses, 90% of them are capable of doing it. Because the basic skill set you learn in the military is the same skill set you need to run a business. You don't have to have expertise in a given subject to run a good business. You need to be able to put together the team of people who have the expertise right. in what you're trying to do. And that's the case with us. I mean, we, you know, we don't know how to run some of these aspects of, of a food business. Well, speaking of, let's talk about your model because your model is, and I, I've told you this all the time, and I don't mean this in a demeaning way. It's just like, you guys, like everyone's familiar with incubators, but like, it's like, you guys were the first like food incubator. Like really seems kind of bullshit to me. Cause like, I feel like everybody would have been doing this. You know what I mean? But it's no, you guys were the like very first ones in the country to set up this model. If you want to explain it a little. Sure. Yeah. And, and should clarify, there are others doing something similar. Nobody's doing it in the way that we're doing it. Right. And as far as we know, there's nobody out there who's doing this in a really profitable way, which was important to us to the extent that it's very important to our backers, you know, the people who invested in it. You're not solvent. Like how long can you, this experiment possibly run for? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we, we run a, a food hall space for, for a customer. It's like a food hall, similar to some of the food halls you might see in bigger markets like New York, San Francisco, uh, Chicago, basically big open spaces with a lot of different vendors and they run their own kitchens and they're all open kitchens and you walk up and it's kind of a Panera Bread style of ordering where you order at the counter and they bring the food out to you kind of thing. And uh, we also run a, a huge bar in our space that is kind of built its own brand and following in its own right, which to some degree serves as a, as a revenue driver for the whole space. And that's all customer facing stuff. But on the backside, we're, as you said, an incubator, an accelerator for new food concepts. So our basic thesis going into the whole thing was there's a lot of skills-based professions out in the world. The experience, the training, the background to manage some of the administrative business aspects of running a company. So accounting, you know, legal, navigating real estate loans and licenses and leases. Insurance, all that Insurance, stuff. Insurance, yeah. That's a, that's a whole set of knowledge that's pretty closed off to most people. It's hard to find that out. You don't learn that in school. Right. You don't learn it in, a, in business school either. You don't learn it in Yeah, they don't tell you how to get a permit from the city right. or business school. And so that takes me back to this concept of being able to navigate institutions and bureaucracy because starting a new business from scratch is so much about that and so much about the network and knowing when to push and when not to, and who to push with and who not to push with. And then, then there's just this whole other component of just the sheer perseverance of it. But um, I would say that when we initially started talking about it, it was like, wow, there's all these skills out there that if somebody taught them how to run a business, there could be some really interesting businesses out in the world. Because you have, you know, our, our example was chefs. You have some culinarians, you know, you have some real artists who are making amazing food. And what chef doesn't want to own their own restaurant? Right. Every chef, that's the dream, you know. Restaurants are the typical example of a very 
capital intensive business with pretty low margins. Yeah, profit margins. it is the like eBay was started to sell restaurant equipment from restaurants that had defaulted, right? Like it's the highest turnover of any huge default rate. Yeah. And so we started thinking about why that is. Because if you did a study, even if you controlled for the quality of food, you're still getting a huge failure rate. So you have restaurants that are putting out amazing product, they're still failing. Conversely, you have restaurants that are putting out a really terrible product and they're doing really well, like fast food chains. McDonald's, yeah. There you go. You know, McDonald's isn't in the burger business. McDonald's is in the real estate business, right? right? (laughs) They know what they're good at. It's not making burgers. They're pretty bad at making burgers, but they sell a lot of them and they make their money in real estate. And so they know, they have a whole set of knowledge that is exclusive of making burgers. And our idea essentially was that we can give people who are actually good at making burgers the set of the skills that they need to create a lasting business and a business that makes money and something that they can create for their families and can give to future generations and they can create an impact in something that they, that they should be able to make an impact on. This is, a, this is a skill set that they've developed over a really long period of time and there's nothing really between them and owning their own business and really growing and expanding it other than the skill set. So you guys, you, you and Ben are the owners of the business, but when someone comes in, it's their business for that time period, right? Yeah, that's right. So we get a lot of applications. We, we open up this application pool via our website and our marketing and our press plans and social media, and we really just try to hit every angle of it. So we get a ton of applications. for. Like, How many did you get for this last iteration? For the first class, we got about 50 for this second class, it was around 100. And, uh, and they were all pretty good for the most part? They were all pretty good, yeah. And you have, you know, it's a mix. So you get a lot of people who never really worked in a commercial kitchen or like home cooks, and they might be putting out some amazing food, but they work in corporate. And we certainly consider those. But the volumes we're doing at our place, we really need people who have worked in commercial kitchens right. before who can turn out the sort of volumes that we need. You know, we're really looking for people who have been in commercial kitchens for a while, maybe they've worked their way up the ladder, sous chefs, executive chefs. I've always dreamed of starting their own place. They're kind of at a point where they feel mature enough in their, in their field to, to, to start their own place, but they lack that next step. It's like, we don't have the capital to do it. You need three to 400 grand to start an average restaurant, just the averagely sized restaurant. You need to be able to know how to negotiate a lease or at least know who to call to figure that out. You need to know how to raise money. I mean, you you need to know how to design a space, the architectural components. You need to do a lot of things that, that you just don't get exposure to as a chef. So the idea was that we'll build out the space for them and we'll build out these kitchens for them, put all of the capital risk on us, and in return, get some really high quality operators in our space who are turning out really good food and kind of serve a double purpose of giving them a huge opportunity to build their brand and build their business and also exceeding people's expectations when they walk in the door, which uh, candidly we weren't necessarily considering when we got it going. But we've, what we found is that the overall vibe of our space doesn't really lead a person to think when you walk in that it's going to be high quality food and drinks. And I think we have a huge opportunity to ex- kind of surpass that expectation. And it helps them build their brands in big ways. Because when people come in and they have a, an amazing dish, they want to know 
why this is so amazing. Why is this such right. a good dish? Who's cooking this? Where were they before? Why, why don't they own their own restaurant? Why isn't this more accessible? That's what we're trying to do. I don't know. Was it fair to say you're kind of like perpetual investors? Like you're always in the position to give someone else a break that it took you get a lot of fucking work into getting to this point. You're kind of removing some of the barriers for other people to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many barriers and we, we want to break down the biggest ones. It, you know, it's always going to be hard to hire staff, for instance. Yeah. You know, that problem persists no matter where you are. But you need $400,000 to open a restaurant. All right, we can get over that barrier for you. And that's, that's not considering, like, prime real estate space either. Like, we're, 400 grand ain't going to get you in the door, like, in Manhattan. Oh, you know sure. What I mean? That's an average number. Yeah. So, you know, by definition, we're ruling out the tails of that. Sure. We're ruling out, like, New York. I'm talking about middle America. That's what it's going to take to open a, a standard That's crazy. couple thousand square foot restaurant, right? And we're on this whole wave right now, this whole trend towards approachable food, towards high quality food and accessible price point. We're moving away from, we're certainly moving away from chains, but we're moving away from white tablecloth places. And yeah. we're, we're really moving into this age of like democratic dining where it's, it is a shared social experience that you can't get online that you don't get on yeah. Facebook. You're coming with a group of people and we're using food as a vassal, as a mechanism by which to bring people together. And that's what we saw overseas. We saw these huge spaces, huge groups of people. You know, everybody's there for food, but they're also there because this is a social communal experience. And um, we think that Every city needs needs it, but especially these cities that are on the rise and yeah. these cities that are redeveloping at a really fast pace. Cities like Pittsburgh, Detroit, like you said, Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati, Baltimore, you know, St. Louis, Nashville, Austin, Denver, Minneapolis, Milwaukee, like all these places that are just on the rise right now that are just having an influx of new people, but some of the other aspects of the economy haven't caught up yet. And we're one small cog in that wheel. You're also doing stuff like you have Veterans Happy Hours. If you're in Pittsburgh, it's the third Thursday every month, right? That's right. Like six to eight. Right. So you should be there or not because you're a douche, but you should be there. <laughs> we're just scratching the surface. you guys are doing surface. really well, too. You're getting ready to open a new location in October? Yeah. Right? Yeah, we're opening our second one in Pittsburgh. Same concept and everything? Same concept. It's uh, a, lot, a lot more seating. We realized in the first one we need more seats. It's too, it gets too packed. Yeah. And so our second one's over by PNC Park where the Pirates play. 100-seat beer garden, big garage doors that roll out there. Well, four, four concepts. So we're going to bring in four people, give them the shot to run their own place. We'll run the bar, you know, top to bottom. And, yeah, to your veterans' happy hour point, I mean, we're just scratching the surface on the kind of community programming we can do. Our space is such a great conduit for those sorts of events. Oh, yeah. We're particularly passionate about the veterans' community, so that's kind of where we started with it. But there's a lot more that we can do. And now that we kind of have our feet under us and we, we understand our model really well and how it works, I think you're going to see us getting involved a lot more in some of those community development kind of projects. That'd be and, awesome. Uh, you know, I think, I think there's a need for more uh, fun yeah. <laughs> in our society. Sure. Uh, we have some great veteran organizations in Pittsburgh that are filling, like, you know, VBC, like Red, White, and Blue, uh, a lot of these groups are filling huge gaps in the market in terms of training and resources and skills and uh, support systems for veterans. We're just trying to step in and fill the social aspect. Yeah. Of it. So 
we kind of think that if we're that the first step in any of building in any of this idea of building the community is getting people to have a community you know building the community so getting people in the same spot and then we can think about all right now we have all these people let's mobilize them to do something we think that that's a much longer term sort of idea but you know when you bring people together with common goals and, and certainly common experiences you have a huge opportunity to do something bigger you know than just serving them good food and good drinks. Sure. So that's where we're starting. That's awesome. Uh, anything else you want to talk about, man? I, I, w- I want to say actually one more plug about yeah. something I'm very passionate about. And I know you are too. And I know a lot of the other veterans who are now civilians are passionate about it, is hiring veterans, getting them jobs when they get out of the military. These are people we touched on a little bit before, but it's worth emphasizing. And I think that as a country, as a society, we have to do better at it, at thinking about it, thinking about the problem. How do we ignite these people with huge capabilities and deep experiences and unreal maturity and ability to handle crises and problems? That is a huge latent pool of talent in our country right now that we are not tapping into. And we're paying lip service to it right and left you know, from the political spectrum on both sides of the aisle. Sure. This is a huge body of people that we're not doing a good enough job supporting and helping to get jobs. I, I personally believe that, the you know, this next wave of leadership that's going to come into power and influence in this country is going to be led by veterans, especially post 9-11 vets. There's a lot of us out there and we're only just starting to scratch the surface of, you know, kind of getting back into society and figuring out how we make an impact. You know, we have some leaders out there who are stepping up like, you know, Jason Kander and yeah. Tammy Duckworth. And we're, we're at the very beginning of that. But I think some of, the, some of the perceptions from the business community really need some work and need to change. You know, it's, it's actually interesting. I was just on my way over here in the car. I saw, I saw a bus and it had a sign on it and said, don't think a veteran, yeah. hire one, right? Which they're recognizing an issue, which is that veterans aren't getting hired at the rate they should be. Thanking a veteran isn't enough to show your gratitude. To show your gratitude, hire them. These people are qualified. These people yeah. have a skill set. Hire them because they're capable. The lowest guy in the totem pole in the Marine Corps, you take some PFC that's been in for two years, that's been to combat, that kid has dealt with higher levels of responsibility than most civilians ever will in their entire lifetime. Like there's just, you can't survive in these environments now without just being totally on the ball, super competent and having people trust you that are just as competent, right? Like, that's right. I mean, it's a good point. We use resumes as a litmus. We use a person's educational attainment on a piece of paper as a litmus to how well they're going to perform in a job, but we don't use commendation medals. Right. We don't use combat medals as a litmus for how this person's going to perform under pressure. Are you kidding me? Right. This is a no brainer. This is a part of our institutional systems in the Western world that is completely off track. I remember the first job I applied for was with Meals on Wheels. Jeff, Zach hired me. One of the great guy works for you guys. And one of the questions in the interview was so funny. It's like, can you explain to me a time where you ever had to deal with teamwork? And I was just like, are you guys serious? Like, I got out of the Army like six weeks ago, man. Like, I was in for eight years. 
Right. I had eight years of teamwork, man. Like that's, that's a, such a ridiculous question. Uh, that's exactly right. And that's exactly where the gap is. So uh, it's not enough to recognize that veterans should be hired. People need to understand why yeah, a veteran totally. should be hired. That's the gap. People aren't really understanding. And when I say people, I mean the business community at large and honestly, even the government. I think even the government undervalues these people uh, outside of the military. I think the whole bureaucratic machine of the, of the government systemically undervalues some of the experiences of our veterans. Well, even, even in the military, no one gets paid appropriate to what they're actually doing in the military. A private that's got a gun walking around Afghanistan making decision on who lives and who dies, like deserves to make more than $980 a month. I mean, let's be real here. That's right. And you can drop a person like that in any situation. Yeah. Teach them the skills. I mean, you're, you're not taking a, a, a person out of Wharton and expecting them to know the exact job you're putting them into at McKinsey. You know, that, that, is, learn it, that right? is all yeah. thinking on your feet and learning it. And there's nobody who's more qualified in the world to do that than, than veterans, by Absolutely. and large. If you, take, if you take veterans as a group, there's nobody more qualified. And, uh, that, you know, that's, that's an issue that I hope we can all work on together. For sure. Because For sure. we recognize it and we know the people who are affected by it. So, guys, if you're listening and you don't live in Pittsburgh, come to Pittsburgh. It's awesome. We're doing work, man. That's right. <laughs> Better opportunities here than elsewhere. Standard of living is the right price. Oh, yeah. You know? There's, there's it's cheap enough you can buy a house. Mm-hmm. Public trans sucks. I'll admit that. But other than that, it's great. The Pirates don't suck anymore. Well, they kind of do now. But the Steelers don't, for sure. Stanley Cup champions. What, what else could you want? Yeah, new industries popping up. Tons of new jobs. Uber's here. Google's here. That's right. Anything you can imagine. That's right. And... uh Small Mangali yeah, is here, and, and they got like, the best pizza in the world now. Uh, I think we do. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, our website is uh, www.smallmangali.org. The parent company we just formed a few months ago for all of our new concepts is called Galley Group, G-A-L-L-E-Y-G-R-P.com. You know, we're taking applications for new operators all the time. It's rolling. We're looking for the best people out there and people with a drive to win. Is the new location going to be a Small Mangali as well? It's going to be called Federal Galley. Oh, cool. So oh, yeah, that would make sense. The Galley brand is, is what we're keeping. There's a whole backstory to that, you know, a whole branding backstory, and, and ultimately it goes back to our time in the Navy. You sure. Know, the galley on a ship. But there's also this element of the localization of a concept. So wherever we go, whatever city we end up going to, we, we are passionate about making it local and about involving the local community. So Federal Galley is on Federal Street. Smallman Galley is on Smallman Street. Yeah. You know, other galleys would be on other streets and other parts of neighborhoods and different cities and communities. And we want to involve the, the local neighborhood and city in, in, in our decision-making process and, you know, bring all that knowledge to the table. There's no glory in starting a chain restaurant. You know, right. Or starting a chain that's drag and drop everywhere and it's like cookie cutter and you get the same experience every time. I don't want you to get the same experience every time. You know, you should come into our place and have a different experience every time. Different positive experience. Right. But it, but every time's a little bit unique. It should reflect the uniqueness of the community. For sure. You know, there's so many cool parts, cool, cool elements about the Rust Belt cities that should be highlighted in new businesses. You know, they should be highlighted everywhere you go and give us an opportunity to uh, bring it back to life in an interesting way. It's awesome. 
Tyler, thanks so much for joining us today, man. It's been a really good one. Oh, thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. If you like what you heard, please be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, or your favorite podcasting app. 